Okay, welcome to another episode of Simulit. My name is Adam Marsh, and I am joined by my regular film contributor, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, thanks, Adam. Looking forward to this. Hello to you. Hello to everyone listening. Yes, this is going to be an interesting one because we did we did uh, New Hollywood uh, fairly recently, a couple of podcasts ago. We did a whole two podcast episode of um, looking at the New Hollywood movement, and um, you made a comment during that podcast that I felt could not go unanswered, could not go without being challenged in some way or explored in some way at least, when you said that Roger Corman was the single most important American director in all of cinema, I think you believe you said it. I think you, you started off saying in Hollywood, but then went and corrected yourself and went in all of cinema. So we are here to look at that. We're, so we're here, we're here to look at Roger Corman. Um, to his impact on cinema, his impact as a producer, as a director, as a talent spotter, um, and a career that he's still going strong now, well into his 90s. Yeah, he uh, he turned 94 about a week ago, and um, he's he's still got a foot in the business. He's not as busy as he was, but he's still got companies going. Apparently, he's embroiled in a big legal argument with his sons at the moment, about uh, them inheriting the rights to his film catalogue, so uh, so he's really? uh, he's still involved in all kinds of bits of business in the film industry, and he's got credits as recent as, as sort of three years ago. So uh, I think I bought that from Death Race 2050. Death Race 2050. Yes. That's right. I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Mm. And um, you know he's only ninety four, so who knows what uh, what he might offer in the future. Absolutely. But yeah, to come to come back to the uh, the remark that you made earlier on, what we said during the previous podcast, I think certainly there's a very very good argument, and we're going to make that today to say that uh, certainly in, in post war cinema, in in sort of in the history of modern American cinema, and therefore I think because American cinema is so influential, I think. You can apply this globally. I I think, and hopefully we'll make the case today, that he is a, a linchpin. You think of anybody, take you know, pluck a name out of the air like Tom Cruise or someone. You take them out of Hollywood history or film history, and does the whole thing collapse? Does does everything we know fall apart? No, it doesn't really. You 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 lose a few Johnny Depp films or a few Tom Cruise films if you remove them. But if you take Roger Corman out of history, if he'd never existed, I I don't know what we'd be watching. It'd be very very different to to the cinema landscape that we know. Okay, well let's explore that claim. Uh, Roger Corman. How do you get his start, Darrell? We, we, we talked like um, he's had a long career. So he started off in the 50s? Yeah, 1953, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the early 50s, he um, uh, I, I think he'd done a few years in the Navy. Uh, I don't know whether that was sort of during the, the Second World War or just after. He himself seems to be very vague about all that and rarely mentions mm. it. But, uh, but I know that he was uh, training as an engineer in the early 50s. And uh, according to the books that he's written and all the books on him, there was just this nagging thing inside him. He thought, I've got to write, I've got to write, I want to, I want to write movies. And so he got out of engineering and his, his parents were, were very supportive. And he started uh, sending scripts here and there. And he sent a script called House by the Sea to uh, the Allied Artists Company in the early 50s. And they changed the name of that from House by the Sea to Highway Dragnet, 
And as Corman himself has said, <laughs> uh, at that time, you know, 1953, uh, the Dragnet TV series is, is, is massive. And uh, Corman's quote on that is, they'd have stuck the word Dragnet on the Bible if they thought they could get some mileage out of the TV series. It is funny because that does seem to like, I don't know, mirror a lot of what Corman's career ended up becoming. Yeah, I think he was obviously learning lessons from the guys in the business as he went, you know, and soaking up not just information and not just sort of skill, but I think soaking up the way things were done and how how to make a book, how to save a book, you know, how how to do things cheaply, how to exploit things. And yeah, that's right there in that story, I think. So uh, he made a bit of money from selling scripts. What he decided to do was uh, become a producer and he set up a little company called Palo Alto, which was the first of his many, many film companies. And he made a thing that was going to be called It Stalked the Ocean Floor, but the, the distributors said that title's a bit highbrow. Mm-hmm. Let's call it Monster from the Ocean Floor. And Corman produced this, and it was made for $12,000, and it made about 10 times that in uh, box office from, from drive-in receipts and so on. So he's suddenly up and running. He's suddenly got a bankroll behind him. And um, he, he comes to the attention of AIP, Sam Arkos and uh, James Nicholson, who are just starting to get their feet into the teenage market in the mid-50s. And Corman strikes up a partnership with uh, Samuel Z. Arkos and James H. Nicholson that lasts for the next 15 years, which is what we're going to talk about next. Well, one of the first films, I guess, that, that people might have heard of that Corman was involved in that have subsequently the title has gone on to become a juggernaut of um, uh, box office income, basically, is the Fast and Furious film, 1954, yeah, yeah, which he produced and wrote. Yeah. So how similar, Daryl, is that to Vin Diesel's multi-ethnic um, cast of characters globetrotting and fighting The Rock? Uh, very different, really. I mean, it's it's got cars in it, but uh, it's a lot more basic and a lot cheaper, as you'd expect. And they they've really just taken the title for the uh, the, the big franchise. But again, what a title! Yeah, great title. So so it is this question of selling the sizzle, not the steak, sort of thing. And uh, Corman's a great film director, as we'll go on to discuss, and was actually able to put a bit of meat on these bones occasionally. But, you know, the key thing was with exploitation at that time, design the poster first, come up with a great title, and who cares what the movie's like. But uh, yeah. but the, the, the great thing about Corman is he did then actually try and put some effort in occasionally and try and make the films good as well. But, yeah, The Fast and the Furious, it's cheap and cheerful, it's not, uh, you know, it's nothing like uh, the stuff that you've seen in, in the last sort of 10, 15 years under that title. But, you know, some of us prefer the 70-minute uh, black and white, get in and out, get the job done sort of thing. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it's worth seeing. Okay, so, so there he started actually getting behind the camera and directing there. So he had his yeah. debut as a director, uh, Five Guns West. Yes, yeah, yeah. Interesting film because uh, this is where the name Dick Miller comes in because Dick is um, a cult hero to all Corman fans and uh, we'll we'll go on to talk about him plenty, I'm sure. But uh, Dick Miller is one of these players who, uh, like Jonathan Hayes and like a few other people, 
are were regulars in those early Corman films um, and have become like this this little sort of cult uh, stock company that Corman fans all know and love. And why Dick Miller's worth mentioning in 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 uh, terms of the Western Five Guns West is that he was hired by Corman to um, to play one of the cowboys, one of the posse in the film. And as they're filming, the film filming took you know a week or something, you know. And um, while they're filming, Corman realizes that he's not got enough extras, and he gets Dick Miller and one or two of the other guys to uh, masquerade as uh, the Indians as well as the cowboys. And Dick Miller always says, uh, you know, if, if if you watch the final edit of the film, I'm in the posse that actually shoots my character. So uh, <laughs> so he's playing a cowboy shooting himself as an Indian. So uh, this is this is the world of filmmaking that you're dealing with. But uh, again, you know, uh, Corman's done. Uh, he's done this monster movie. He's done the Fast and the Furious. He's now done a western. So within within months of sort of getting his foot in the door of the film business he's doing all these different things yeah he just, he just seemed to stick to a handful of genres in those early days you're looking at westerns looking at science fiction movies you're looking at teen drama type stuff um he just seems to be following trends i mean he even does a gangster movie in that that first yeah, yeah. five or six years doesn't he yeah uh what what do you think is i mean one couple of standards that that, that scream out to me one of them um, obviously, Machine Gun Kelly is known as a, yeah. as, as one of, one of the standouts that period. Another one that um, is unique in the sense that it's been remade twice is Not of This Earth, mm. which was 1957. Then was remade in the 80s and remade in the 90s. Yeah. Any others that stand out for you in that first handful of years? Yeah, there's a, a you, you mentioned how he sort of followed trends and how he was doing sort of team stuff. And um, he got onto the rock and roll bandwagon and uh, he, he could never attract, AIP could never attract, um, you know, sort of Eddie Cochran or, or you know, Buddy Holly or Elvis into their films. So they they were making films like Rock All Night and Sorority Girl, where they they sort of get whichever bands were cheapest, you know, people you've never heard of. But the, the films are great, you know, and again, you, you've got all the regulars, Jonathan Hayes and Dick Miller, who, who are maybe sort of five years older than the kids in the film. So they end up playing sort of bartenders or the guy who owns the nightclub or something. It's kind of ironic with those teen movies, because later on, being older than a, a much older than a teenager, and obviously became a trait of many teenagers in Hollywood cinema. You know, you think yeah, like Greece, yeah. where they all are like forty-five and join a pension, you know, something like that. You know, and they're playing teenagers. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's still going on to this day. At uh, Quad last year, we showed uh, Lords of Chaos, the film about the Norwegian black metal scene, and that's got a load of Hollywood actors, all aged sort of twenty-nine, thirty, playing seventeen-year-olds. So it still happens to this day. Yeah, another one that that jumps out to me is like is 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 the sort of like it is the science fiction stuff. So you've got and and I and I quote: you have the Wasp Woman, yeah, yeah, the Brain Eaters as one of his produced films. Yeah, yeah. What else have we got? We've got the Beast with a Thousand Eyes. Is that one of Beast them? with a Million Eyes. Million Eyes. Sorry, I'm underestimating. That's an interesting one. That's that's another one that he produced and somebody else directed, although word is that Corman sort of, you know, hovered around on set and did most of the work. Yeah. But um, 
the the monster in that, I, I think it, it was basically um, something that looked like an old electric kettle or something, and they they sort of poked holes in it, and steam came out of it. And uh, you didn't you didn't see much of it because the idea of the film is that the monster comes from outer space and it sort of takes over other creatures en masse. So it will take over like a herd of cows or something. And this is how they justify the title. You know, the monster's got about seven eyes or something because they however many holes they've managed to poke into this contraption that they've built. But Corman, as as always, was, came up with an explanation and said, "Yeah, it's it's the beast with a million eyes. It takes over every, the inside of everybody's head, you know." And and uh, so they got around it that way. So yeah, he'd always got a, a, a great way with the patter and a great great way of sort of explaining away these outrageous titles. Wasp Woman's an interesting film because uh, it sounds as though it's going to be about a woman who turns into a wasp, and the advertising on the poster sort of suggests that as well. You know, you've got the huge body of a wasp with with a sort of woman's head, you know. But the the film itself is actually actually about the cosmetics industry. Very, very, very interesting sort of satire on big business and how they, they sort of do anything to sell a product and put any ingredient that they can in to, to sort of make it, you know, and um, without thinking about the consequences of what it might do to people. And um, so, yeah, you've, you've got sort of wasp enzyme or something being put into sort of uh, cold cream and, and, and face makeup. and it turns the lead character into a monster. So there you go. <laughs> well, why wouldn't it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, much of a movie if it just worked. <laughs> okay, so we're moving on to, to, I guess, one of the key critical hits, I guess, um, of, of that period, and it's another Dick Miller. It's uh, Bucket of Blood. Bucket of Blood. My favourite Corman film, I think, oh. or, uh, up, up in the top three. Um, great movie. Just great film. And again, um, Bucket of Blood is a typical drive-in title. You know, you think, oh, yeah, we're going to go along and pay $2 to see this and eat our popcorn, and we're going to get buckets of blood thrown at us. Not about that. It's about beatniks. <laughs> um, it's a, Again, it's a satire on the contemporary trend of the beatnik, which to anyone who doesn't know, were these sort of coffee house um, poets and artists, very much like the, the sort of scenes you, you get in, in, you know, certain American cities and certain parts of, of London, say, today, where you've got these little communities, little art hubs and things, you know, and they're, they're very sort of insular and they're sort of selling all their work to each other sort of thing. And uh, occasionally you'll get magazines coming along and writing about them. Um, I suppose even even punk rock sort of started out as a bit of a scene like that, where it was sort of fifteen people in London, you know. But they 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 managed to uh, to get publicity. And the beatnik thing in the states was was the same in the fifties. You know, you've got sort of poets like Allen Ginsberg and people, and uh, you've got people doing sculpture and art and painting and music, all happening in in these sort of Californian coffee houses. And Corman does this great sort of satire on this written by uh, written by Charles Griffith who was one of his main writers at the time and Griffith could turn over a script in about a half a day you know he, <laughs> he, if Corman Corman wanted him to make a film he'd just go and write the script and deliver it a couple of days later and uh, and it was always quality stuff and uh, so yeah they do this great satire on the beatniks and Dick Miller gets his his sort of prime role here playing a character called Walter Paisley 
who's like a, a waiter at one of the one of the cafes where all the artists hang out. And he's trying to become a sculptor, but he's 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 terrible. He can't do it. And then one day he accidentally kills his cat with with a palette knife, sort of throws it across the room and it embeds in, in the cat. And he covers the cat in clay and takes it into the coffee house the next day. And everyone everyone acclaims him as the the the, the great new artist. <laughs> and yeah. and um, and of course what he has to do then is kill and kill and kill in order to to keep creating new sculptures and new uh, new art. So yeah, very, very clever satire. And um it's a title that we'll we'll come back to later on because I've I've got something to say about a, a, a remake of Bookies of Blood later on. But uh, but yeah, yeah for now um let's just leave it at that and say if, if you're going to start delving into the, the Corman work of the black and white uh, late 50s period, Bucket of Blood is the film to go for, definitely. Okay, well, leaving listeners with something to continue listening to this podcast for. More thoughts on the Bucket of Blood later. So, so there we move on to, I guess, a, a pivotal point where we get Little Shop of Horrors, yeah. the non-musical version, and we get House of Usher. So two yeah. quite key films in his uh, his back catalogue there. Yeah, both made in 1960, a year when he probably made about seven other films as well, you know. And how, how can he fit all these in? Well, uh, the, the, the simple answer to that is if you look at uh, the making of Little Shop of Horrors, he shot that in two days um, <laughs> for a bet, basically. They just finished another movie. It might have even been Bucket of Blood, you know, and they got they got sort of sets lying around and thought... Well, we can either leave the set standing or we can make a movie this weekend. And again, it was Charles Griffith sort of came up with the script and uh, and Corman set himself a challenge of can, can I make this film in two days? And I think officially it was filmed in two days and one night. And of course, we, we've seen we've seen over the past 60 years what that two days has turned into. You know, it became a huge Broadway musical, it became a, a, a big hit film when it was remade in the 80s, when the musical was filmed in the 80s by Frank Oz. And uh, people probably know that version now, you know, the the, the sort of uh, Steve Martin and... Uh, Rick Moranis. And uh, Ellen Green. And, and people know that and they know the Broadway show, but I wonder how many realise that it all harks back to this film that Corman shot over a weekend. And of course, his big discovery in that movie, who'd already done a couple of acting jobs elsewhere, but, um, but uh, uh, came into this one and stole the show um, as the, uh, the patient in the, uh, in, in the dentist scene, is uh, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, that's where he first raised his head. One of Corman's first big discoveries, and again, we're going to talk about this later on, but uh, but yeah, Jack Nicholson's there as an actor, comes in, does this one scene, steals the show, which he didn't always in his early films, but uh, but yeah, he um, uh, this was the first time where you saw Jack Nicholson on screen and thought, yeah, there's there's maybe something there in this kid, you know. You can see why he did go on to have such longevity in, in, in history and culture that story yeah. because even though it is bare bones carnivorous plant it, it's not a world of difference from attack of the giant leeches or attack of the killer crabs or any, any of the other types of movies that Coleman was making other than it's got a, it's got a much more um set bound much more um black comedy black humor to it 
That was probably yeah, not yeah. that was missing in some of the sci-fi stuff that Bowman was doing at the time. Yeah, and again, it's got elements of sort of satire and uh, talking about contemporary trends and so on, and um, and it's got really interesting characters. You know, um, I mean, the the plant in in the first movie isn't up to much because they're making it with no money. It's nothing like the one on Broadway, you know. But it's endearing in its own way. It's the sort of thing you could knock up in a plant pot at home, you know, make it out of papier-mâché at home. But it's all about the characters. You know, it then becomes about uh, Dick Miller's in it again as, as a guy called Verson Fouch who comes in to buy flowers so that he can eat them. And, <laughs> um, and uh, Jonathan Hayes... Uh, who was sort of vying with Dick Miller for parts in Corman films, actually gets the starring part in this one. So where Dick was the, the star of Bucket of Blood, uh, Jonathan Hayes gets his chance in Little Shop of Horrors. And then, as I say, you've got Nicholson in this bit part and you've got various other people that you, you'll know from other Corman movies filling out the rest of the cast. And, yeah, it's this really lively, genuinely funny uh, little horror comedy, good, really good little black comedy. And as you say... Um, strong enough for it to have uh, a, a sort of lasting appeal, which, as we know, it has done. OK, so, so, so I guess now we move on to probably what Corman's directing career is most known for, uh, and, and that's his, his collaborations and adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe, beginning with The House of Usher in 1960. He made these partially for FAAIP, but weren't, wasn't it something to do they were on the school syllabus? I remember reading something about these films. These films were on the school syllabus, so he could guarantee to get them into school if he made them decent enough. I, I don't know about that, but that sounds like a, a, a move and possibly a way of raising money for the budgets. You know, if he could get the American education system to put a, a few thousand dollars in, that might... Uh, yeah, that's a story that's new to me, but uh, it, it sounds uh, very common. And he always took these films seriously as well. You know, he uh, we, if you listen to the uh, commentaries that he's done on DVDs for the Edgar Allan Poe movies, he talks about them in the way that a sort of Sudi film critic would talk about them. You know, Corman's actually sort of explaining the symbolism in them and, and the sort of sexual imagery and things. And and you're you're sitting there watching it, thinking, isn't this just a monster movie? Isn't this just a, a, a sort of a trashy horror film? You know, and he's talking about it in in very very sort of artistic terms. So yeah, he was taking these films seriously. Um, I'm just looking at I'm looking at his quote here. He said that um, he'd read Poe at high school, and it was on every high school syllabus at that time. And so he in his head, he thought, well, kids love Poe. So let's make let's make a Poe film, you know. Yeah, and and of course, what you've got there is you know school headmasters and school principals and so on aren't going to like the fact that the, the the kids are all going to the drive-in to see Beast with a Million Eyes, but they're going to love it if they're going to see Fall of the House of Usher. You know, there there is that uh, that angle to it. Yeah, the uh, the name to throw in at this point is uh, Vincent Price, who's sort of known to known to the world now as a uh, a, a, a sort of big uh, horror movie star but at that time in 1960 he'd, he'd, he'd done a handful of horror films but he was better known as a sort of suave sort of character in in film noir and thrillers you know but he'd done house of wax early in the 50s in 1953 and he'd done the fly in 1958 do you think it was the fly that might have attracted 
Corman to him because the wasp woman, looking at the wasp woman's poster, <laughs> it is basically the fly, but with a woman and a wasp rather than yeah, a man yeah. and a fly. Yeah, but then, as I say, the wasp woman, the movie, is is really nothing like that. But, uh, yeah, it's all about the poster again. It Absolutely. could well be that, uh, you know, Corman's looking for a leading man to, uh, to to sort of do. And, of course, at this point, it's not a Poe series. It's just the one film they're going to do. Yeah. Um, it's Fall of the House of Usher or House of Usher, as it was called on, on screen. I'd, I'd like to think that Corman was more attracted to Price as an actor for the sort of body of work that he'd done rather than the fact that he'd done a couple of high-profile horror films. Uh, nobody really saw Vincent Price as being a sort of a majorly a horror star at that point. And it was Corman who really sort of brought that out. He'd started doing more, though, hadn't he, at that point? Because he'd done, like, The Fly in 58. He'd done House on Haunted Hill in 59. The Return of the Fly in 59, The Tingler in 59. Yes, he was working, working for William Castle, yeah. He yeah. was, yeah. So maybe maybe he'd yeah. started doing independent work a bit more and, and, and that brought him more onto the, uh, I guess, onto the, the, the wage bracket of a, of a, of a Corman level. That would have put him on, him on Corman's radar, definitely. Hey, I can get Vincent Price, who's a guy that everybody knows, and I can get him cheap. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But then Price comes in and absolutely nails it in House of Usher. He's already at that point, he's, he's known as being a, a bit of a sly, sort of jokey, wink at the camera sort of actor. And then he comes into this Edgar Allan Poe adaptation and um, it's in colour, which is a change for Corman, you know, and a bit of a change for Price at that time after the William Castle movies. So AIP have spent a little bit more money on this one. And um, incredible set design. Uh, Daniel Haller, who was designing the sets, did incredible work for Corman through the 60s. Um, and um, uh, you've got Price there as a good, solid uh, sort of Hollywood presence. And... Um, he plays Roderick Usher in such a fragile and, and, and tender sort of way, and I'm using the word tender there, in, in not, not in a sort of loving sense, but in the sense of a man who's racked with, with sort of pain and torture all the time. And he actually conveys that through the screen. It's, it's an incredible performance, one of his best ever. And as, as often with Vincent Price, it's, it's those performances where he plays against type and against character that seem to stand out in his career. Um, and this one's right up there with the best performances he ever gave. House of Usher is, is um, a brilliant way to kick off this series and um, obviously did, did well enough at the box office to mean that Corman wanted to sort of go on and make more. They ended up making eight of these things all together. Mm. Um, and they were so successful that AIP actually carried on retitling other films as though they were Edgar Allan Poe movies later on. But, uh, okay. but even even Witchfinder General, another Vincent Price film, which is nothing to do with Corman, they released it as The Conqueror Worm in, in the States, which is the title of a poem by Edgar Allan Poe. So even sort of eight years later in 1968, AIP are still trying to mine this Edgar Allan Poe scene, even though... Corman was only working on the films till 1965. But in that time, he did, uh, he did eight movies, um, seven of them with Vincent Price, uh, the other one being a, a great version of The Premature Burial with uh, Ray Land. 
and uh, but yeah, really, really good, good films. Very varied as well. I mean, they they did a version of um, uh, they did a film version that was adapted from the poem, the poem, the Raven, which mm. gave the scriptwriter Richard Matheson a chance to basically write his own movie because you can't make a film out of a poem. So, mm. um, and that's that's done as a comedy. That that is done as an out and out comedy. But then you've got um, uh, the more serious films like House of Usher and Tomb of Ligeia, um, Mask of the Red Death, which is a very very sort of Bergman esque sort of art movie, um, very very sort of influenced by uh, Bergman's The Seventh Seal. And yeah. in fact, a, a film that's uh, worth digging out and watching now because uh, it's all about people being trapped in a mansion during a raging plague. So it's very contemporary. <laughs> well, there you you're, go. Looking for, you're looking for a Corman film to watch today, Mask of the Red Death. Yeah, so um, that's the one that stands out for me in that whole that whole period is Mask of the Red Death. I, I saw a whole retrospective of Corman's poster in Edinburgh when when Coleman was the guest there at the Edinburgh yeah. Film Festival a few years ago. A good few years ago, no, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and that really stood out as being it, one of the highlights, if not the highlight of Coleman's career visually as a director, because it really just pops off the screen, the colours, the, the, the style of it. It really does seem like he's stepping up his game for that film. Yeah, well, he came over to Britain to make that, and um, yeah. uh, um, Ang- Anglo Amalgamated, the British film distribu- distributor, had actually put money into the the into the earlier Poe movies um, to guarantee them sort of distribution rights in Britain and make sure that Anglo Amalgamated got a share of the profits. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose nowadays, the way film financing goes nowadays, you might actually say that those are part British movies, you know, in, in the sense of finance. Yeah. But, um, uh, but back then, um, they were putting a few grand into each one and nobody really knew, you know, because it was all done under, under, under the radar and they just ended up taking part of the British, British box office. But um, Corman had was lured over to England to make the final two Poe movies, Mask of the Red Death and The Tomb of Ligeia. And Mask of the Red Death is the first one. And um, it, I, I forget what the film was, but it was shot on the sets of another movie. Um, uh, might have been A Man for All Seasons, I think. But, uh, um, but it was a, a big British production of the time and the sets were still standing. And uh, Daniel Haller sort of added a little bit to them, and uh, but they basically filmed on on standing sets and, and gave that film a much more lush, lavish sort of feel. And yeah, it really benefits the movie. Um, they're not penny pinching here, you know. They're making something on quite a grand scale, and as I say, it's got Bergman-esque sort of pretensions as well. Yeah, it was shot on the sets of uh, the film Beckett from nineteen sixty four. So you're right, I mean, it does have that sort of like, hey, they spent a bit of money on this one, but in true <laughs> Corman fashion, they hadn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Carry On Cleo was made around the same yeah. time and that did the same thing with the sets of Cleopatra. But uh, yeah, so it was in the air at the time. But Corman, Corman was great at that. You know, he, he didn't want to penny pinch or, well, if he did, he didn't want the films to look cheap. You know, he wanted to make a film on a low budget, but he didn't want the film to look like a low budget film. No. And so the ideal way was to sort of do something like uh, like this. And if you've got a standing set, you know, why not use it? Absolutely. I mean, he, he also, um, he did get a deal with, was it Columbia? 
around this around this like mid sixties, late sixties period, where he got like a three picture deal with a studio mm-hmm. and delivered yes. them a movie. Yeah. And he got hired to do a movie which is like a two point five million dollar budget, and he brought it in four hundred grand under budget. <laughs> which is like, what are you doing? No one does that. Yeah, well, his big studio movie of the 60s was um, uh, 20th Century Fox. He made uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. That's the uh, one. So that, that, that yeah. might be the one that you're talking about. And again, that was that was another gangster movie, and it was based, obviously, on a, on a sort of well-known, uh, well-known uh, actual event. But this was at a time when making a gangster movie was a bit of a gamble, uh, as this was pre-Bonnie and Clyde. You know, gangster movies weren't sort of in the ether, and uh, Corman made one, yeah, brought it in on the budget and uh, and uh, had a reasonable success with it. But this was his one sort of venture into uh, into major studio territory. And, uh, yeah, an interesting sort of anomaly in his career because uh, it's around the time that he's, he's also getting into what I think we want to talk about next, which is um, his um, adventures in the counterculture. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, well, just just looking back, I mean, we've been talking about these movies now as if he's a normal director making normal directing movies, and he's not. Basically, I mean, he's making. I mean, literally, the year he made House of Usher and Little Shop of Horrors, he also directed two other movies that year: Last Woman on Earth and Ski Troop Attack. Ones that haven't stood the test of time as well as the other two. But he was making generally like four films a year at least. You yeah, know, in some yeah. years, in 1957, he's making like he's about seven films that he made in 90, eight films in 1957. So he's like already by the early 60s, started his career directing in 55, and already by like the early 60s, he's in, he's in triple figures, he's in double figures from directing. This is a career that only goes on for 15 years. He stopped yeah. directing in 1970, and yeah, made made dozens and dozens of films in 15 years. So, so like the, the the experience that he's had by the time he starts directing, like in the five years between 1950, 55, and 1960, when he does the first House of Usher movie, he's directed like like twenty films before. Yeah, yeah. And so he's got the experience at that point. And you know, some of them, as you say, some of them are lousy, but a lot of them are good. They're, they're quality, and some of them are very good. And uh, and this this is he's learning all the time. You know, he's developing his own filmmaking techniques. And as I say, he's actually got pretensions as well. You and me watching the films may not think that they're great art, but Corman does. You know, and he and he can sort of tell you why they're great art. So yeah, his his DVD commentaries are well worth listening to. Because he's a very sort of erudite, very educated man, and um, if he tells you that he's copying Ingmar Bergman, you better believe it. You know, I suppose we've we've got we've got two things to move on to now that are sort of uh, intertwined with each other. The two developments, aside from him uh, directing these movies and making so many of them, were that he was actually he'd actually started hiring other people to direct films as well. This is where his in- instincts as a producer, this producer start coming in. Mm. And again, it's all about having spare studio time and having two days or three days or a week or actors available that he can work with. And he starts getting younger filmmakers. And he, what he does is he gives them the chances that allied artists and AIP have given him. It's great. It's it's a really 
grand gesture on Corman's part, I think, to say, look, I was given a leg up in the in the movie industry 10 years ago. I'm going to start doing that for, for guys that are the age that I was back then. And this is where this idea of the Corman school comes in, you know, because if you look Corman up online, one of the first things you'll see about him in any article on him is a great list of names of people that he discovered. We've already talked about Jack Nicholson and one or two others, you know. And in that early 60s period, he's giving work to young guys like um, uh, Monty Hellman and um, uh, Jack Hill. But, um, you know, they're, they're known in sort of cult circles to this day. People know who, who Monty Hellman and Jack Hill are if you're into your sort of cult and exploitation movies. We've talked surprisingly amount of time on Monty Hellman in the last few podcasts. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. on the Acid Wessons podcast, he was on the New yeah. Hollywood podcast, and here he is making an appearance on this one. Was it, was it Battle of Blood Island that he was uh, uh, involved in? Yes, I think so. Yeah, well, he's, you know, he's, he's involved in, in, in quite a few films around this time. But uh, Corman's also working with guys that the general public, the main film-going public, will have heard of, the big one being Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola, at this point, is is sort of um, trying to get his feet into the film industry by by making sort of nudie films. You know, he's, he's, in, he's in these very dodgy sort of sleazy territory in the early 60s. And so working for Corman, working for Corman on the axe murder movies is a bit of a step up for Coppola, you know. So, oh, this is my big break, you know. There's a great story from uh, from, from this period where um, Corman, AIP, have started buying in movies from Russia. There are all these great Russian science fiction films in the early 60s, and they buy one called uh, Nebo Zoivot. What they want is for Corman to film like an extra 15 minutes or 20 minutes of footage, bung that into the movie, they'll dub it all in, into American English and they can release it in the drive-in under the title Battle Beyond the Sun. Mm. And Corman gets Coppola to direct it. He says, right, Francis, you know, we need 20 minutes of footage, you know, can can you do it? And Coppola's like, oh, brilliant, you know, this isn't the Coppola of The Godfather yet. This is young, aspiring film student who just wants to... Uh, hold a movie camera, you know, and the the story is that Coppola and Corman are watching uh, Nabo Zoivet in a preview screening, you know, and um, Coppola's loving it. He's thinking, oh, this 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 Russian film's fantastic, you know, this looks great. And at one point, Corman sort of taps him on the shoulder and says, uh, Francis, you see that hill over there? And Coppola's thinking, do I see that hill? It looks amazing. It's brilliantly lit, you know. It's symbolic of the characters. Having having to face the start of a journey, you know, up some unsurmountable obstacle sort of thing, and uh, it's lovely, you know. I, what what an image! And Corman says, "Yeah, that hill, that hill. I want I want you to put two monsters on it in in the next two days, you know." And Coppola goes off and does this, and the monsters are the lousiest you've ever seen. You can you can see them on YouTube. They're well. Let's be blunt about this. They're actually fairly sexual, you know. Let's let's just say that one looks like a giant gourd with with sort of dangling eyeballs, mm. and the other one's a sort of banana shaped one. And the banana shaped one actually gets inside the top of the gourd as they're fighting, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
it's it's an image that you'll never forget once you've seen it. Is that um, Coppola's hangover from the uh, nudie films he was making maybe, earlier on? Maybe, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's an extraordinary little scene. And if you see no, no more of Battle Beyond the Sun, watch that two-minute clip on YouTube in, in terrible quality. But um, <laughs> Corman was working with Peter Bogdanovich at this time as well. Again, Bogdanovich, as we know, was someone who was desperate to get into the movie industry and uh, his his wife Polly Platt was was there as well, and uh, uh, and they they were both very very keen to to get involved in filmmaking. And Corman did the same with with Bogdanovich. He he said we've got this Russian film called Planet of Storms. It's it was filmed it was filmed in the Black Sea region of Russia, but they they used the Black Sea as a match for Venus. And he said, can you go down to Leo Carrillo Beach in California? Because it'll be a great match for the Black Sea. And, um, and he says, can you take a dozen girls down there and um, put, them in, put them in weird costumes and film them and, and bring back some footage, you know? And, and Bogdanovich is quoted in Corman's book. Corman wrote a great autobiography called How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. <laughs> and Bogdanovich tells the story in that of how all this happened on Planet of Storms. Uh, they'd already made a film, I think, with Curtis Harrington called Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, which was based on a Russian movie. And imaginatively, they came up with the title of this one, which was Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women. <laughs> and yeah, Bogdanovich, all, all he says about that movie is this was hell. <laughs> you know it wasn't what he wanted to be doing when he when he decided to get into filmmaking but then of course we get onto the story of targets in the late 60s which i know is a big favorite film of yours yeah i love that film i think it's a great film but just looking i mean like targets uses footage from the terror yeah yeah which is a legendary corman film with Corman, but also with uncredited Francis Ford Coppola stuff. Yeah, yeah. This is where all we, we need <laughs> we need to take this slowly now and sort of explain <laughs> this whole tangle of films because they made this film called The Terror in 1962, which was a bit like Little Shop of Horrors in that they wanted to make a film in two days. Boris Karloff had made um, a film with them, and Corman realised that Karloff's contract ran for, you know, 10 days or something. And they finished the film in eight days. And so Boris Karloff owed him two days filming. And it's like, right, I can let that go and I can pay Boris off and, and we can we can give him the weekend off or we can make a movie. So he's on the phone to Charles Griffiths or Richard Matheson or one of his regular writers. And uh, he's saying, guys, can you come up with a plot? We, we need, we're, we're filming with Boris Karloff for two days. You know, we need to make this movie. And they make this film called The Terror, and it's got Jack Nicholson in, it's got Dick Miller in, it's got Boris Karloff in it for two days. And Corman allows the young guys that are working around him to all shoot uh, an afternoon on it, you know, or a morning on it. So Jack Hill directs some of it, Monty Hellman directs some of it, Francis Ford Coppola directs some of it, and on the last day, they even let Jack Nicholson direct some of it. <laughs> which is a bit of a blessing because it is, his acting performance in the film is ghastly. But, uh, you know, this this is the guy who was the, the best actor in Hollywood 15 years later, and he's, he's <laughs> terrible in the terror. But, yeah, he directed uh, a, a couple of hours, a couple of scenes on the movie, 
And they then release this film and, uh, you know, it, it plays the drive-ins and so on. And it sort of fits in alongside the Edgar Allan Poe movies. It's got a very similar look to those. And then years later, sort of six or seven years later, Corman comes to Bogdanovich and says, look, we want you to film 20 minutes with Boris Karloff and do another 20 minutes somewhere else. And you can use 40 minutes from the terror and it will make a new movie. And Bogdan- Bogdanovich is sort of rolling his eyes, thinking, what on earth am I going to do with this? But he turns in this film called Targets, which is absolutely extraordinary. One of the great films of that very sort of apocalyptic period of the late 60s, where you've got, um, you know, stuff like Altamont going on and you've got political assassinations going on. And Bogdanovich makes this extraordinary movie under these extraordinary circumstances where Corman is is giving in these extreme limitations. And yet he, he goes and makes a masterpiece. And I know you're a huge fan of it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies where it's it, it has got all those limitations, but it doesn't feel like the script is born from those limitations. It feels Not like sure. that's what they were always wanted to do with yeah, this yeah. story, to pit... Uh, an aging horror star of Boris Karloff, you know, Frankenstein's monster, the legend of ho- of Hollywood horror against a new form of horror, which was in the newspapers. It was in, it was in the ex-Vietnam vets coming back from the war, traumatised. It was about snipers, people, kids trained to shoot people over hundreds and hundreds of feet, you know, coming back from, from wars and having these skill sets. And then and and going crazy and, and and shooting people. So it was it was in in part based upon the school shooting. Uh, there was a shoot, a sniper holed up in a tower. I think it was in Texas. Yeah, Charles uh, Charles Starkweather in in the mid sixties. Yes, yeah. And and and, and was taking out people at ran- seemingly at random. And this kind of horror and this kind of terror, the sort of like, there's no master plan behind it. It's just random random horror seeps into this and it pits that horror against the old horror of, of, of old Hollywood of the monsters and the movies that kind of stuff and places that in in both an actual setting and also as a, as a comment on that kind of on that kind of a way Hollywood's changing as well new Hollywood and old Hollywood Bogdanovich takes this footage from this terrible mishmash of a film, The Terror, and he actually makes it look good. And more importantly, he makes it look significant. Yeah, you know, because it, it, suddenly it means something. And it's, 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 it's brilliant filmmaking sort of done as, you know, he's, he's, he's given this weird sort of, you know, can you, can you make this film collage sort of thing uh, so we can get a cheap little movie that we can that will fill up the schedules and um, and he turns in this this late 60s masterpiece yeah i mean obviously polly platt plays a big part in this as well i mean i think polly platt's impact on bogdanovich's career is underestimated I, I believe um, particularly when you look at targets how great targets is um it was from her story you look at last picture show it was from her, her her screenplay input as well. And when that goes away, when they get divorced, Bogdanovich's films are not as good. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah, the two yeah. are aligned, but maybe they are, I think. Possibly. 
tell you one thing, Adam. If Polly Polly Platt may have been sort of largely written out of film history, but I I I can bet you that Roger Corman would have taken note of her because he went on to um, further the careers or start the careers of quite a few female filmmakers. Again, some some of them sort of cult directors like Stephanie Rothman and Barbara Peters, who he who he got sort of making monster movies, but. Um, uh, he he backed a director called Amy Jones in the early in, in the early eighties, and she she started out making a film called Slumber Party Massacre, which sounds like fairly typical fare. Mm. But she struck a deal with Corman that okay, I'll direct the film that you want, but I've, I've got this film called Love Letters. I've got this romance that I want to direct, very personal film to me, and I'll do Slumber Party Massacre if you agree to fund Love Letters. And Corman did, and, and that film was quite a, a sort of sleeper hit in the early 80s, quite a popular popular mm. movie on the art house circuit. The, the big female name that Corman backed and who worked for him in the late 70s and early 80s and went on to have a massive career of her own was uh, Gail Ann Hurd, mm-hmm. um, the producer who worked on a lot of stuff with James Cameron. And Cameron himself was around working at New World Pictures at the time as well. But uh, we'll 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 come on to all of that later. What we've not mentioned that we keep trying to sort of jump into is harking back to what we talked about on the um, on the New Hollywood podcast is Corman's involvement in counterculture movies and getting involved with Peter Fonda and Bruce Dern and um, and Nicholson again on films like The Wild Angels and The Trip in sort of 66, 67. Yeah, let's drag it back to um, to, to, to Corman's directing career because we're, we're shooting up into his producing career. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Both feet, but he's still, not, he's still not spent force, is he? No, no. Um, so we got like, we, we're moving back to it. I mean, I guess the one that stands out to me is the unusual one that might have led, led to his more interesting, I guess, Less money making films, The Intruder. Yeah, uh, slightly yeah. before the counterculture stuff, but The Intruder, an interesting movie from race relations kind of point of view. Um, it yeah. took- and this is made right in the middle of him doing the Edgar Allan Poe movies in colour, and he suddenly goes back and makes this little black and white movie. It's got this fairly unknown actor called William Shatner in it. This is four years before Star Trek, you know, yeah. really sort of gripping, tense, hard hitting film about the race issue in America right in the middle of of that being at its most heated. Yeah. These are the events here that, that lead to the rise of the civil rights movement. And Corman's addressing it all in this little drive-in movie with this unknown actor. Brilliant, brilliant film. It does seem that Corman's trying to, I don't know, elevate his career a little bit, get himself away from from the sort of like, you know, Attack of the Killer Crab movies. Yeah, yeah. And then and then this film comes out, and it's a great film, but it, it is one of the movies that he doesn't mention in his I Never Lost a Dime uh, <laughs> series of things. Because this one it's, did flop. Yeah, it's the one that did lose a dime, yeah, yeah. It did lose a dime. <laughs> and then he never went back and did anything like that again in that respect. Yeah. But he learned that lesson. I think so, yeah, yeah. But it was worth a try. And I think he was a filmmaker who did have something to say. The the thing was, he, he found that he could say the things that he wanted to say in monster movies, in Edgar Allan Poe films, you know. He didn't need to sort of separate 
that need to preach and talk about current issues. He didn't have to separate that from the drive-in, you know. He could actually get those messages into an exploitation movie. And I think this that's another lesson that he learned there. And I think that then sort of feeds into the films that he did for the rest of his career. Mm. It showed that he could do serious movies, but yeah, if, if they didn't make money, he wasn't going to be interested. So you then get to, as we've mentioned a couple of times, you know, the, the hippie movement and the music scene and LSD are sort of infecting everything in America and across the world. And Corman jumps on the bandwagon. Well, he followed trends, didn't he? So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is no different to monster movies, gangster movies. This is LSD movies, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Counterculture movies. So mm. he started off, I mean, there's a run there of like four or five movies where you're talking like The Wild Angels, Riding the Whirlwind, um, The Trip, all feeding into that counterculture movement. Yeah, leading up to, uh, in, in Corman's final year as a director, 1970, he made a great film called Gas, mm. which is all about um, one, one of these sort of hippies taking over the world type movies where a, a, a gas kills everybody over the age of 30 and the hippies are left to, to sort of run everything. And uh, as, as we mentioned in previous podcast, films like that, tend not to end in a very idyllic way, you know. But, but that, that movie's even got Edgar Allan Poe in it as a character. You know, I think he's riding a motorbike. So, uh, you know, this is the, the, the crazy world of the, uh, the the sort of acid movie, you know. But, yeah, the, 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 the two big ones there, I think, are The Wild Angels and The Trip. And Corman, um, Corman did a thing that um, all, all of the other older filmmakers that were trying to jump onto this hippie bandwagon you know, it all resulted in some very, very embarrassing movies, both at the drive-in level and, and at the top of Hollywood as well. People like Otto Preminger were, were trying to make with films like Skidoo. But what Corman did that nobody else did uh, was get it right. And the way he got it right was to bring in the kids and make the films with them, to get Peter Fonda and, and Nicholson and Bruce Dern and the people that were that actually knew something about these scenes and to say, look, guys, I want to make these films about bikers and about taking acid. Tell me what that lifestyle's like. And they jumped at that. You know, Peter Fonda loved the chance to get involved in these movies and to actually tell the story of his generation on screen. I said that A Bucket of Blood was one of my favourite Corman movies. I think I'd put that in the top three with The Wild Angels and The Trip. I think those three films are the best that he ever directed. And and they all have something to say about uh, contemporary youth movements. Yeah, I think I think I'm, I think you're 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 on the you're on the right lines there with those three. I think they they're the ones that stand out in the career as as films that have impacts beyond their time. Yeah, yeah. So let's delve into the the, uh, the Wild Angels. Now that was obviously cashing in on uh, Hell's Angels, that kind yeah, yeah, of boom yeah. of, of, of motorcycle clubs. One of many films around the time that did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess that went all, goes all the way back to uh, the Wild One and Marlon Brando and yeah, things like yeah. that. Uh, whereas this was a very different different to that. So it wasn't about teenage, it was about teenage rebellion, but it, it had roots deeper in society than just just being a teenage rebel. 
Yeah, and it's a much more melancholy film than you might expect as well. It's, uh, you know, I mean, Bruce Dern's character in the film dies very early on, but then stays in the movie as a corpse, and they're sort of, it's all about uh, the Hells Angels sort of staging his funeral. Mm. So it's it's not quite the sort of rip-roaring bikers on the road coming to your town and terrorising your neighbourhood sort of movie that the poster might suggest. You know, it's about one of the Hells Angels dying and the others um, uh, uh, trying to stage his funeral in the face of hostility from the man and the authorities. Yeah, I mean, what is it, what is it, Daryl, that they want? That's the that question. What is yeah, it that they it actually is, want? It is indeed, yeah. We want to be free. We want to be free to ride our machines. We want to get loaded and we want to have a good time. There you go. <laughs> so this movie was released. Was was it? I'm, I'm assuming it was successful. Yes, very, very, yeah, yeah. Because he, he obviously carried on the, the the biking thing angle carries on in 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 that period. Yeah, well, I think it was a success because it tapped into a whole new audience. You know, it was yeah. like the Hell's Angels like to see movies as much as the rest of us you know and the, but they they hadn't got any films to go and see and suddenly here is one and uh yeah uh, it, it did tap into a whole new youth market that hollywood didn't necessarily realize was there you know and they found that out late three years later when fonda and dennis hopper did easy rider you know that it, three years after the wild angel it still came as a surprise to mainstream hollywood that there was this youth audience out there, you know, and Corman had sort of tapped into that as early as 1966, and it took mainstream Hollywood three or four years to catch up. Okay, let's let's move on to the trip now. Arguably, one of Corman's highlights as a director, visually, storyline-wise, tapping into counterculture, all those things align, and it also brings him together with a handful of key figures in in hollywood um that would be in key figures in hollywood over the next 10 years um particularly like jack nicholson yeah yeah but also continue with peter fonda and bruce dern and dennis hopper briefly dennis hopper briefly yeah <laughs> but also still dick miller still um yeah yeah <laughs> we're not getting rid of dick miller we're, mo- <laughs> we're, we're moving on to this way but we're still having dick miller yeah and and one, I mean, you mentioned the film's visual look, which is great, but a lot of it harks back to stuff that he was doing in the Edgar Allan Poe films. Mm. A lot of the weird psychedelic effects and so on. You know, you look at the Edgar Allan Poe movies, and he, what he did in the titles of the Edgar Allan Poe films was sort of do these visuals where it seemed to be sort of pouring tins of paint on top of each other and filming the swirls, you know. And in 1960, you thought, oh, that's two tins of paint being poured on top of each other. In 1967, you're thinking, oh, man, far <laughs> out. And, but oh, he's, still using, he's still using very, very similar sort of visuals in, in the trip. And the Edgar Allan Poe audience is thinking, well, we, we, we've seen this, you know, but the hippies are all going, oh, this is incredible, you know. Yeah, Peter Funder plays a director. So there's an element of, of like, is this like for like? Is this autobiographical? But it yeah, couldn't be yeah. further from the truth. Corman was not part of that scene at all. 
in fact, famously, he 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 did he he got no idea about LSD, but he wanted to know. So he he sort of asked Fonda and and his connections. You know, um, can you arrange it so I I can I can take acid before the shoot? You know, to see what it's like. And apparently he did, and he he didn't get any reaction from it whatsoever. You know, um, but but um, sort of understood that other people did. So he he I think his intention there was to sort of experiment and see that you know what would happen and if he did have a good or bad trip or whatever and and to feed that into the movie but um as as nothing happened whatsoever he then had to just use his own visual imagination which luckily was sort of fertile enough to uh, to manage to make a film that did put that kind of experience on screen and I'm sure Fonda and Hopper and the other guys around would have told him if he was going wrong. So they were happy with what, what he was filming and what was coming out in the rushes. And um, yeah, I, I think it's it's a film that does hold up better than most in terms of actually recreating an acid trip and getting the the highs and the lows of that. Yeah, as you say, interestingly, Fonda plays a, a film director. So uh, You've you've got this this comment on Corman's own situation there as well, and uh, examining a character in a way very much like himself, sort of a few years earlier. But uh, just a fascinating film in so many ways, and for for me, it's it's the way that he works in the the whole sort of counterculture thing, but brings in these elements from the Edgar Allan Poe movies too as well, and uh, it stands possibly if I had to choose, as his very, very best film. So it was an, it was an interesting time that this was made as well. I mean, because up until the previous year, LSD was legal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Particularly legal in, in, in Hollywood. Well, Vin- Vincent Price had taken it in, or his character had, in, in The Tingler. That's the right, William, yeah, yeah. William Castle film that we mentioned earlier. And wasn't, wasn't Cary Grant famous advocate for LSD as well yes, in, the, yeah, in the late 50s, yeah. early 60s? So this was being made at a time where they just banned it in, in 66. So as soon as it became illegal, then it became ripe for film, <laughs> for being yeah, counterculture and being... counterculture are in there and Corman's in there. So, yeah. yeah. So moving, moving on from, from that, is there anything else from that period that you want to talk about, Daryl? As I say, he, he he quit as a director in in 1970, a year in which he made about five films, I think. But uh, having having made half a dozen films, he he decided to call it as a day as a director, and he left AIP uh, and set up his own film company called New World in the 1970s. But there was a little bit of a crossover in in the early years of the 70s. He was producing films for other young filmmakers at AIP. And this is where you start getting some of the interesting names coming in, like uh, Ron Howard, who who's at the time, you know, um, would have been best known as actor from the Happy Days TV show and has gone on to have a massive, massive, major Hollywood career as a director. But Ron Howard was making films for Corman. Uh, Martin Scorsese came in to make Boxcar Bertha which is a very, very interesting early Scorsese film. And Scorsese said about his experiences with Corman, while he was making Boxcar Bertha, Scorsese says that Corman said to him, Martin, what you have to get is a very good first reel because the audience want to know what's going on. 
and he says, you need a very, very good last reel because people want to hear how the film all comes out. Everything else doesn't really matter. And Scorsese <laughs> says, that's the best sense I have ever heard from anyone in the movie industry. <laughs> okay. So, he, so, so just, going, just going back a little bit on that connection there, one of Corman's final films, his handful, his gaggle of films that he shot in the last year of his, of his directing care was Bloody Mama with yeah, Shelley Winters yeah. and the young Robert De Niro. He'd, he'd been in a few Brian De Palma films in the 60s, but uh, so Corman, for once, can't claim to have discovered De Niro. But, uh, but I think what you're seeing in Bloody Mama is the first indications of the De Niro persona, you know, which mm. De Palma never quite tapped into. You know, he, he was filming with Bob because, oh, it's Bob De Niro, my mate, you know, let's put him in a movie. But it was Corman and Bloody Mama that really started tapping into what can this guy actually do? What's he all yeah. about as an actor? And obviously Scorsese was would, would, would have been someone among the audience to see that film. And I, I don't know, I, I've never heard him talk about this, but it may well be that that was the first time that he, he sort of saw De Niro and thought, hey, this guy's interesting. So the rest is history. <laughs> so one of the first things that struck me when I was when I was starting to do a bit of research into this was like, I logged. I thought, well, I'll have a look at his, his credits, Roger Corman's credits. So I, logged, I fired up IMDb, typed in Roger Corman, and he said, Roger Corman, actor, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> And that's that's literally what he what he says that Corman is 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 the most successful film of, of his career. The thing yeah. that he's that most people know is Silence of the Lambs. And that came about because of his connection to Jonathan Demi, who in these early years of the New World Pictures, um, he was involved with on a film called Angels Die Hard. Yes, yeah. Angels Hard as They Come, is it about that kind of uh, period? Which involved Jonathan Demi. So that was one of the first one of the first connections there with other talent, I guess, discovering other talent. Yeah, and, and the great thing is, and the connection with Silence of the Lambs and other films, is that um, these guys that Corman discovered never forget it. In, in Corman's book that I mentioned, uh, How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood, half of that is written by Corman and a ghostwriter, but it's filled with um, anecdotes and stories by Jack Nicholson, Scorsese, Bruce Dern, Dick Miller, everyone that Corman ever worked with. Bogdanovich tells some great stories. And one thing you got here is the guys that Corman discovered and gave a chance to never, ever forgot it. When there was a documentary made about Corman a few years ago, which is available on, on Blu-ray, well worth looking, and Scorsese and Nicholson sort of banging on the door to be in it, you know, they, they're desperate to get in and tell their stories about working with Roger and how he gave them a break. Nicholson talks yeah. and talks and talks about Corman all the time. And a lot of the directors that Corman gave a leg up to when they made it big in Hollywood, they came back to him and they said, Roger, will you be in my movie? Will you do a cameo in the film? You know, mm. So he's in The Howling, the Joe Dante film. He's in Silence of the Lambs. He's in um, around about the time that Coppola was working with the Vin Vendors a lot. In the early 80s, Vendors made a great film called The State of Things, one of my favourite films of the 80s. And that's all about a filmmaker who's struggling to do a remake of Roger Corman's Day the World Ended. 
And um, he's trying to make this sort of art house version of The Day the World Ended, which is an old Corman film. And uh, the only place that the filmmaker in the state of things can get money from is from Hollywood gangsters. So he's trying to make this art movie, but it's being funded by the mafia, basically. And Vendors makes this real interesting sort of movie looking at the, the whole state of filmmaking and the state of independence art and of course he's got a character who's a lawyer in the film so who's he going to cast he gets roger corman to play the lawyer and very good too but they didn't just put corman in cameos in these films they always tried to make them fairly significant like the little bit that he does in the howling a distressed character rushes out of a phone booth somewhere in in la and the guy standing outside the booth waiting to use it is Roger Corman. And not only does Joe Dante have Corman come in and show his face on screen, but the first thing he does is he checks the slot for loose change. It's not just let's get Roger in a film. It's let's have a dig at him. Let's say that, you know, he's a penny pincher. So, yeah, they'd always love to do this. And Corman graciously would always go along with the gag as well. I think he, he loves his reputation. And um, he sort of plays up to it, you know, he really does. So, so looking at some of, obviously we've mentioned some of the bigger names that were discovered by uh, Coleman Coppola and people like that. But I'm looking back here now, you got like people like Curtis Hansen directed his first films. Yeah, yeah. For Coleman with Sweet Kill in 1971, went on to, to Oscar winning with LA Confidential. Yes, yeah. Obviously we'd worked with Jack Hill. And Jack Hill went to be part of that black exploitation. Yes, he, he was the, the white director who made most of the black exploitation classics, uh, Foxy Brown and Coffee, all the great Pangria films. Yeah, other other names to throw in, I suppose, the slightly cheaper end of the market. There's somebody like Jim Wynorski who sort of came along in the 80s, much later, started making films for Corman in the 80s, and continued to make films for Corman for about the next 25 years. So managed to get a career in drive-in and straight-to-video movies and made dozens and dozens of cheap monster movies and cheap horror films with Corman producing. One one interesting name here is uh, Jimmy T. Murakami, who was an animator, who yeah. Corman hired in the wake of Star Wars. Everybody was doing their Star Wars rip-offs. And one of the most successful in 1980 was a Corman produced film called Battle Beyond the Stars, not to be confused with Coppola's Battle Beyond the Sun. Battle Beyond the Stars, which was an attempt to do the Magnificent Seven in in space. Um, They got Robert Vaughan from the Magnificent Seven to star in it. They got Sybil Danning to appear in it in a number of outrageous costumes. And they got this uh, animator, Jimmy T. Murakami, to direct it. And he did a great job and it made a ton of money and it was one of the best Star Wars rip-offs. And Jimmy Murakami then got back to his animation roots because he was one of the animators working on The Snowman a couple of years later, yeah. the Christmas classic. And he then directed and was the, the main the main sort of guy behind the adaptation of the Raymond Briggs um, When the Wind Blows. So quite a big name there in, in the world of animation. But Corman yeah. was a guy who, who sort of gave his filmmaking career a real leg up. Yeah, I mean, another one that I want to pull out of the uh of the of the massive <laughs> list of people that was uh got the start was george armitage yeah yeah who went on to direct one of my favorite films gross point blank 
Uh, but he also directed Miami Blues, which is a great movie as well. He got his start with Foreman as well. Yeah, yeah. There's so many names. I mean, John oh, there's like Robert Town, who uh, Robert who Town, wrote yeah. Chinatown, um, yeah. was had written loads and loads of stuff for Corman in the early 60s. Corman didn't like working with Robert Town all that often because um, unlike Charles Griffiths and unlike Richard Matheson and the other writers, he took his time. Matheson would, would bang out a script in less than a week. He'd do a script in five days, you know. Town would be agonising over his opening scene in, in that five-day period, you know. So he soon got ditched, but then um, made a career for himself as a writer and director in Hollywood and uh, Chinatown being the film that he's best known for. But, I mean, there, there are loads of them. As I say, the whole, the whole point of doing this podcast is to celebrate the fact that Roger Corman has, I think, and I hope we've illustrated this, has proved himself to be the linchpin of modern American cinema. Take him away and you've got no James Cameron, you've got no Scorsese, you've got no Robert Town, Bob Danovich. You know, Peter Fonda might well have made it with his family connections. Jack Nicholson probably wouldn't have or may have been a success as a writer rather than as an actor. Well, Jack Nicholson in that documentary, Rod Corman's World, that documentary was very good. It was, it was an interesting documentary, but it was Nicholson's interview that really elevated that for yeah, me. Yeah. He got so emotional about it because I think he, even he realises that if it wasn't for Corman, he wouldn't have had the career he had. No. And, and, and you, know, you can see him in tears at the end, that, in the end of that documentary just thinking about the impact that Roger Corman's had on his life. And rightly so. And he's and good for him. He's never forgotten it. And he does promote Corman to this day, you know. Mm. No, absolutely. He, he, will, he will never forget how he got started in the business and the help that he was given and the encouragement that he was given. And that's Corman. He, he's, he's done that for so many people. And that has defined modern Hollywood over the past 70 years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. One of, one of the other things I wanted to just quickly mention, we talked about this briefly on the uh, new Hollywood one, just about what the American cinema going public was seeing at that period. And as part of New World, when he set up New World, part of what they were doing was redistributing European cinema. So American yeah. audiences got to see Cries and Whispers in my Bergman for the first time and a yeah, fortune yeah. for him. Um, but he Fellini, also brought, Fellini films as well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. But, but just looking at some of the stuff he brought, the first Truffaut movie, yeah, Peter Weir, Cars Eight Paris, yeah, like you say, Fellini with Amacor, Joseph Losey, the romantic English woman, Von der Schlona, the you know, the last one of Katharina Bloom, the Tin Drum, and then even Kurosawa. You know, he was bringing all these filmmakers to American cinemas or driving yeah. or, or wherever. You know. And this is the sort of stuff that Corman would actually watch on, on, on the rare occasion that he got a day off, that he wasn't making three movies. He'd, he'd go and watch a Bergman film, he'd watch a Fellini film, mm. and he knew the marketplace well enough to know that, OK, it was a different audience to the ones who would go and see Beast with a Million Eyes, but he, he knew that there were viewers in America that would appreciate seeing Bergman and seeing what was happening in, in Europe and outside America. And he brought these films in and played them to a different audience in different types of presentation and different types of theatre. And 
they made money as well. Uh, and critically successful. Yeah, critics were being deprived of them as well. American critics were desperate to see this work and they could often only see it to their great annoyance if it had an AIP or New World um, logo slapped on the front of it. But they got to see the movies, they got to review them. Yeah, and then they were saying that in that 10-year period, New World won more Academy Awards for Best Foreign Film <laughs> than any other studio. <laughs> so, you know, it was obviously doing something right with his eye on what quality talent was out there, you know. Yeah, talking of Academy Awards, and this might be a, a, a good way to, to sort of wrap things up, I guess. We're going back 10 years now to 2010. It was announced in late 2009 at the 2010 Academy Awards, they were going to give a special award to Roger Corman. And Quentin Tarantino did a speech in support of Corman. And Jonathan Demme actually came out to present Corman with the Oscar. So uh, that, that really capped his career to perfection, I think. They'd never, ever in a million years have given him an Oscar for any of the individual films that he'd done, although I'd argue they should have done. You know, what won Best Picture in 1967? Was it as good as The Trip? I doubt it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, to give him an all-encompassing career award was a, a nice acknowledgement, I think. And um, OK, the mainstream might not like what a filmmaker like Corman does individually, but they do respect the career overall and like you say just just the impact that he's had on on the shaping of hollywood is undeniable anyone who's come to this today and has not heard of roger corman you owe the guy a massive debt a lot of the films that you've watched and enjoyed wouldn't even exist without him some some of them directly some of them two or three degrees removed for instance you know star wars you know, George Lucas had nothing to do with Roger Corman, really, but he had a lot to do with Francis Ford Coppola. Mm. So it's it's that lineage you have to look at as well. So arguably, if Roger Corman hadn't got Francis Ford Coppola to shoot those monsters in Battle Beyond the Sun in 1962, there might not have been a George Lucas. You can you can make those connections. Well, on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> On a world without Star Wars, let's draw a line under that now, the career of Roger Corman. He's still yeah, going at the moment. 94 so. still out there. I, I reckon he's going to make it to 100, and I reckon that if he does, he's going to direct a movie. I just think that might happen. Yeah, maybe another Death Race movie. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Daryl. I hope everyone's keeping safe out there in the podcast world. Sure. We shall see you soon. Another great conversation there. Thanks, Daryl. Thank you very much, Daryl. Thank you.